Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather in your house together as your family. Um, we thank you that you brought us into your family and that you're a good, good father, that uh, you're a perfect father who has no fault, that we can look to you as a perfect example, um, perfect example of love and mercy and compassion, a uh, perfect example of justice and protection and, and guidance. Um, so we just we pray, pray this morning for our fathers in this community, um, the fathers that we have who are not in this community, but who are a part of our lives. Um, I just pray a blessing upon them this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself if they're not in a personal relationship with you, that um, you would use us to bring the light of the gospel into their lives. And um, if they do not... ...who don't have uh, father figures close in our lives... We just ask, Lord, that you would um, be that father figure for, for us and that you would, um, we know that you're the ultimate father, that no father on earth can replace, um, replace you. And so we do have that encouragement, um, knowing that you are the best father that we can have. And so I pray that you'd be that father for those who don't have a father close in their lives. Um, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, um, I'm going to be preaching from the Gospel of John. John. Um, the Gospel of John starts with the word in the beginning, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, this is one of the most profound statements in Scripture. Um, it's so simple in the original language. Um, for those of you who might be interested um, in the original Greek grammar vocabulary, it's just the simplest of writing style that John uses in this book. Yet the deep theological richness that he conveys. Um, with, what he, what he, with what he says, um, sets up some of the major theological understandings that we have in our Christian religion. Um, these are foundational doctrines to our faith. And, and some of these foundations you'll see that come from this passage um, of who Jesus is, as he is um, in his divinity and being the third person of the Trinity. The writing style of John is the easiest Greek, like I mentioned, to understand. When I was in Bible school, this was actually the first passage of scripture that we interpreted in class when we were learning how to interpret Greek, when we were learning how to translate Greek. Uh, it's written in very simplistic um, grammar and vocabulary, and yet, like I said, it, it's so rich and full of um, theological richness that um, benefits our lives greatly as Christians. Um, I, so, it's been a while since I worked through this book. Um, I don't think I've probably read it for a year or two, I just, for some reason, maybe it was just one of those books that I had read many times in past years, and for whatever reason, I just didn't come back to it for a while. But um, this past Lent season, I decided to go back to the writings of John. And so I read the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And as I worked through that, I realized how much I was missing out by um, not reading through it in, in recent time. And so I hope that you can as well see the richness that John presents in his gospel. Um, we're obviously, we're not going to go through the whole book, so um, I'm going to be going through the prologue. Essentially, this is a summary of what the gospel in, entails. And so, the prologue is the first 18 verses of, of the gospel of John. It's John 1, 1 through 18. So, um, this gospel is written unlike the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, those gospels are called the Gospels, gospels, because 
three of them form a summary or a synopsis of the life of Jesus. And they're all written along the same vein. Um, there's many parallel passages you will see between the three of those Gospels um, that are very similar and almost identical word for word. Um, John, on the other hand, he fo- focuses less on the summary of Jesus' life and more on a presentation of who Jesus is as, a, as the Son of God. So it's not, these other Gospels don't um, omit that. Focus isn't as much on the theological aspect of Jesus as the Gospel of John is. So, um, for instance, in John, there are no parables. So the other Gospels are focused more on Jesus' life as he lived it through his ministry. And so there's a lot of different aspects in those Gospels, like parables, where Jesus teaches, his, teaches these stories that teach a lesson. Uh, John, on the other hand, doesn't have any parables. He has seven major I am statements that he makes. There's a lot of discourse coming from the mouth of Jesus and John about who he is. And so there's seven statements Jesus makes in the Gospel of John about who he is. They're called I am statements because they begin with the words I am. And so these are meant to unveil and explain who Jesus was, who he is as God incarnate, God in human flesh. And so um, the reason John wrote in this way um, is found in the purpose statement of the book of John, which is in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's goal is to give an account of who Jesus is so that people can see that Jesus truly is God and truly man. He's come in the flesh to live life that we could not live um, and give us an understanding of God that we could not have without Jesus. Um, and in, in seeing this, my hope is for us um, that we would have a reception that leads to belief in life. And if we already have that belief in life, um, that in, it would enrich in our walk with the Lord. So... Um, As we get into the text this morning, uh, let's pray and then jump in and read it. Dear Lord, I just pray for this uh, time of going through your word. I ask, Lord, that it would be a a fine time for all of us, that our spirits would be humble and willing to listen to you, that you would enlighten your word to us and allow us to understand and receive um, the practical application for our life. Uh, We just ask, Lord, that your word moves and lives in us the way it is meant to be. We know that your word is living and active. I just pray that we can humble ourselves before you and learn from you and um, allow you to speak to us through grace in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to be looking at the prologue of John. It's the first 18 verses of the book. Um, Let's uh, start in verse 1, if you can turn there with me. I'm going to be reading from the NASB, which is pretty much the same as the Bible in front of you. So it should be pretty, the wording should be pretty much the same, very close. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name is John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was a true light which which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. For he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained. he has explained him. So as I mentioned, this passage is full of theology that is impact throughout the gospel. So my job today will be to give insight um, into that theology, um, and so hopefully we can have something that we can walk away with that will benefit our lives. So John starts his gospel with a phrase that should be familiar to us if we're, if we're in church for any period of time and, and heard Genesis read. It starts with the words, in the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John is not starting his gospel account, his gospel account with Jesus' beginning on earth. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, um, or genealogy of Jesus, as it pertains to his bloodline all the way, dating all the way back to Abraham. Luke starts his gospel with an account of the prophecy of John the Baptist and his birth and then his ministry. And then later on, in a couple of he has a genealogy of Jesus um, showing that he is the line of the Messiah. Mark omits a genealogy altogether and jumps right into the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. John, however, starts in a much different place. He goes all the way back to pre-existence, before creation even began. So it's no mistake that he harkens back to Genesis 1-1 with his phrasing. He has a different agenda in mind than Mark Matthew had. Whereas the other Gospels are focused on the human bloodlines of Jesus to show that he was, is the true Messiah, which John doesn't discount or, or, or contradict in any way, um, John is more focused and interested in showing the deity and eternal nature of Jesus as the Son of God. He establishes a framework where Jesus is seen from the outset, not in frail humanity, um, but rather puts him in a place of dominion and authority in the reader's mind. So it's from this vantage point that John proceeds. Um, in verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John presents Jesus as the Word. Um, Jesus is not introduced by this name anywhere else in Scripture, other than this beginning, this beginning section of John. Um, John attributes a title to Jesus rather than the earthly name we know him as. He begins with the word, this almost like an idea. Um, this title, is, like I said, is only used in a section of scripture. And he's making a statement about the nature of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, and his role in that relationship he has with the Godhead. Jesus is the word of God, the person through which God reveals himself to creation. It is this nature that is displayed um, in the creation of all things as well. 
often says that God's word is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And it's the personification of that word that makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. Word in the Greek, this word logos, translated word, was understood by the Greek Stoics to be the rational principle by which everything exists and which is of the essence of the rational human soul. As far as they were concerned, there was no other god than the Lagos, and all that exists had sprung from the seeds of this Lagos. So whether or not John's readers were Greek or Hebrew, he was making the same powerful statement about who Jesus was. Jesus isn't just a prophet proclaiming the word of God or being his representative or voice like we see in the Old Testament prophets, but Jesus was the word of God. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So John, John presenting Jesus as the word lays the foundation and groundwork for everything that will follow um, in this book. So in these first two verses, he's making a clear statement about the divine nature of Jesus. Those two verses are foundational to understanding of the Trinitarian relationship, right? The God, God, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Word was with God, it says. And the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. This word with that he uses describes intimacy. This is a, this is a deep relationship that he's explaining. It wasn't that Jesus was next to God, just kind of near him. No, he was with him in an intimate relationship. Um, a clear distinction that Jesus was not God the Father, but was God himself. And so he leaves no doubt in the reader's mind of who, he's, of who this word is. Um, in verse 3 it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. As I mentioned already, Jesus was the agent by which creation took place. So Paul takes it a step further in Colossians 1 when he says, For by his, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, for he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if we consider the Genesis account of creation, we can see the Trinity in action, and especially Jesus' role in that creation. It says, God said, let there be light. He said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered in one place and let the dry land appear. As we read through that, it says over and over again, God says this, God says that. We could keep going through this creation account, but the second person of the Trinity is speaking creation into being. This was none other than the incarnate, than the word of God. His role in starting into motion creation and order creation together is something that the New Testament writers saw very clearly. When we think of Jesus, we don't usually think of him as a creator, right? I mean, I, I know I don't. Um, to us, he's usually the friend, the savior, the king, maybe gracious redeemer, sacrificial lamb. I mean, he has many titles in our minds. Uh, much of how we view him is in relationship to us and our relationship with him and what he does and has done for us. But John gives us 
picture of someone who is far above and beyond a relational figure for our needs and our desires. It should make it all the more mind-blowing that when we consider that he actually condescended and humbled himself and came to earth, even the point of being killed on the cross and dying, that he actually went through that considering who he actually The amount of blindness it takes to ignore these implications um, of these first, first three verses is pretty embarrassing when I think about it in my own life because it's easy to do that. Um, the grander scale of the glory of God that is ignored in our day-to-day lives as it pertains to our relationship with Jesus should really cause us to consider what these three verses say of who Jesus actually is. When we think too highly of we think too lowly of Jesus. When we think too lowly of Jesus, we often think too highly of ourselves. This is why we need scripture like this to expound upon the person of Jesus in his greatness, to show us who we are in our need and our relationship for him, with, with him. So thanks be to God that he's gracious, that he doesn't hold that against us, that he's slow to anger and his grace meets no end. So let's continue in verses 4 and 5. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we see this theme of life and light introduced. In John's writings, in his epistles, as well as this book, we see this idea of light and darkness that he uses very often in this idea of life. Um, These two, this light and life, go hand in hand in John's theology. This wasn't a new idea that John was coming up with either. These were pretty universal religious ideas in the time, specifically in the wisdom writings of the Old Testament and the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. But John was tying these things to to Jesus, to the person of Jesus. In John 5.26, Jesus says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave life to the Son also to have life in himself. So this reiterates the authority of Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. In our verse here, John is putting on full display the value and glory of the word. Throughout the rest of the book, John will impact to his readers through the testimony given how Jesus is the life. Throughout the Gospel of John, the ideas of life and light are largely in relation to salvation. Um, and in this verse, it's not extremely clear how he's using it. Um, but what is clear is the, that he's making the point that the source of this light and life that we have is found in the person of Jesus. So we're, we're going to be unpacking what that light and life looked like a little bit more in a second. But um, let's jump into verse uh, 5 and continue. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So John sets up a major theme in his theology. He announced this dichotomy between light and darkness. Um, this should not be confused with like a yin-yang relationship or like a karma type of thing. The word in verse 5 that is translated comprehend um, is better understood as like overcome or overpower. So just like a, a candle in a room cannot, or a candle in a room overcomes our candle, same We're going to see. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So just as the other Gospels began with this messianic ministry as the forerunner, they used John the Baptist as coming before Jesus, because that's what he shows Jesus, or John the Apostle writing the book, shows John the Baptist that testimony. As I mentioned earlier, this gospel was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So this sets up the mode wherein John goes about convincing his reader to believe. So by giving testimony. All the miracles and the I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the book give testimony to who Jesus is. His for the, the listener's salvation. John the Baptist was the first testimony sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. In verse 22 of chapter 1, um, it says, Then he said to them, um, the Pharisees said to him, to John the Baptist, Who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And John said, As Isaiah the prophet said, So John's ministry was intended to turn the hearts of the people back to God. And that is why he was preparing, the, er, and, and in that way, he was preparing the people for belief in Jesus. John the Apostle is doing the same thing here with the account of the Gospel. He intends for the listener to read, to understand the light of the Gospel found in Jesus himself. I think it, we should take it a step further when we say that all Scripture is intended as a testimony of God's plan, as it played out and plays out today. So my question is, are you listening? Are we listening? I know that if I truly consider how I approach and read Scripture, I'm often something, right? When you go to read the text, you're looking for something. In that frame of mind, it can be easy to miss or even dismiss what God is revealing to us or intending us to apply to our lives. We can often miss the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that way. I think if we have been following along with the series and acts that we're going through, um, we can already see that this approach led the religious leaders astray. They approached Scripture from their own mindset. Throughout all the Gospels, we see a clear depiction of the misunderstanding and rejection of Jesus by many, particularly those who are meant to shepherd the nation of Israel, the religious leaders. So when you come to Scripture with preconceived notions of what it should mean or what we should find, we run the danger of ignoring or missing what God is actually saying. Now, this isn't to say that we're supposed to ignore what those who have gone before us have understood and written about, because there are many men and women who have spent years years studying scripture and interpreting it and helping us understand it. Rather, what I'm addressing is the heart behind our approach to scripture. It should always be humility and teachability, willing to be taught or um, taught anything that the Lord wants to teach us, whether we want to or not. So in verse, just in case there is any confusion, um, John, again, reiterates that he's not the light, or John the Baptist was not the light, but he testified to light that was to come. So after making this distinction, John is going to introduce the incarnation. The true or real or genuine light was coming into the world. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. With the truth of the testimony of John the Baptist in mind, it is emphasized here when it says that the light was coming into the world. He points back again to what was said earlier in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the one who gives light to everyone. Enlightenment doesn't come apart from the person of Jesus. Even knowledge and general revelation that we have in our world was given and created by Jesus himself. Many have distorted it, but any true, any truth in this world created all things, and he's the one who holds all things. Things are created for his glory. So verse 10 reiterates this. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. In John's theology, seen throughout his writings, and in New Testament theology in general, the term world almost always refers to the existence of humanity as it is bound in sin. So it's most often used in the negative sense. John is referring to the world as it pertains to humanity in general, not the physical universe. As I hope we are familiar with, we know that the state of mankind is fallen and in need of Christ. That is why it says the world did not know him. In our natural state, we do not know God in that way. Furthermore, against the rejection of Jesus by his own people. In verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So this is the prologue to the Gospel of John. And in case you're concerned about spoilers, it is going to spoil what's coming up. So if, if you were to go home this week and read through the Gospel of John, he basically lays out the whole thing in this prologue. But he's, he's not trying to trick anybody. He's trying to set us in who Jesus is. John, Jesus' own people would reject him. They would take it a step further and put him on a cross and crucify him. And then as history unfolds, they attempted to snuff out Christianity as it moved forward, as we can see in the Gospel of, or in the, in the book of Acts that we're going through. However, we see that that's not successful. Uh, in the next two verses, John g- goes ahead and gives that gospel message. So in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is teaching who he is. The world has rejected him. The Pharisees have rejected him. The religious leaders have rejected him. And when you get to the second half of the Gospel of John, it's basically... Um, Jesus, in his last two days, going to the Passion, going to the cross. And so, John kind of structures his prologue in that same manner. In verse 12 it says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this word used for receive is pretty much synonymous in John's gospel with believe. His own people didn't receive him, therefore they didn't believe him. However, those who did receive him and believed, he gave right to be called the children of God. So this word believe is used 98 times in the gospel of John. An incredible number. It's no wonder that his purpose statement for his hearers is that we would believe in Jesus. So that was his whole goal in descri- describing the content that we can glean from this gospel is born from the desire for the reader to understand and believe who Jesus truly and fully is. John isn't giving these terms and descriptions of Jesus so we can have fancy terminology or different ways to 
of Jesus, everything he presents is driven by practicality. Everything we read in Scripture is meant to be practical in our lives. None of Scripture is meant to live in a theoretical framework in our mind, um, but it's meant to live in our lives. Theology is never meant to live in textbooks or dissertations or sermons or articles written by scholars. All that Scripture says in any theology, theological concepts that are drawn from Scripture is dead unless it is lived out and put into practice in our lives. It's just meaningless words. The knowledge that Jesus is the Word who was with God and is God isn't a cool, clever theological concept. It is a reality that says that the person who came to earth as a baby and lived a human life without sin and died on the cross, the person who was able to fully understand endured what we could not even fathom going through and could not possibly endure ourselves on the cross, he is the God who always existed. whose power is literally infinite, a concept we cannot wrap our heads around. So this is a reality that should shape our existence in day-to-day life. It shouldn't just live in our heads. Our trials become bearable and lose their power against us when we live in this reality of who Jesus is. Suffering and hardship become temporal in our minds and can't cause us to lose hope when we know the hope we have in Jesus and his power in the resurrection. The temptations and sensual pleasures of this world are seen as counterfeit as they truly are because nothing can compare to the vastness of knowing God and lovingly submitting ourselves to his infinitely wise will. So we see that these things are fleeting and we have a much greater hope to look forward to. So I hope and pray that you always take what you read or hear in scripture and ask how can I apply this in my life because unless it affects us, they're just empty words and ideas in our head. So John, coming back to the text, John says that those who believe in the name of Jesus are given the right to become children of God. And there is a clear distinction given to these children. It's not by bloodline, right? If we read what verse um, 12 says, or 13 says, he says, they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So they're not of bloodline, Um, presumption that they are against the exclusion of Gentiles. This really welcomes everyone in. And it's not by physical or mental will of man trying to procreate and carry on that bloodline. Rather, it is simply only the will of God that these children are adopted into Christ's family. By grace alone, through faith alone, by the work of Christ alone. So it's only by believing that we are saved. And John makes that very clear. John finishes the prologue basically with a very clear description of the incarnation. Um, 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This term, dwelt among us, literally means tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, um, God went with the nation of Israel and they would send, set up a um, as they moved along in the desert, the nation would set up this temple and God's presence would be with them in the tabernacle. And so the term here that we use is basically saying God tabernacled among us. Jesus came to be present with us on this earth. He wasn't just living in a portable temple in a fixed place, but he came as a human being. And then after, he lives in our hearts. He's literally tabernacled within us. So this is explaining that Old Testament concept. There was a clear intimacy 
upbringing. As I said, when we consider who Jesus is as the word of God, he is so far beyond what we can actually think about being God himself, yet he condescended, condescended and humiliated himself to the extent that he came as a human. Also, he could have that intimate relationship with us. It also says, um, <clears throat> and we saw his glory. So he, he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So they, the disciples, the apostles, John himself, they experienced the glory of God as he was in human form. They were there watching all his miracles and taking place in his miracles. All the things he taught, they got to hear. All the things that he explained to them, they got to fully understand through resurrection. Because as we know that, even in reading the Acts the last couple of weeks, that they didn't fully understand that until afterward. Um, his death spoke to... Um, his death and his resurrection spoke to his glory and his... Um, and his uh, his victory over sin and death. And so they saw God's glory displayed through the person of Jesus. Um, and it says, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten. So Jesus wasn't just this other man that they saw, but he was this unique son of God. This term, only begotten, basically means one of a kind, a one-off. There's no one else like him. His relationship with the, with the Father was special, and they got to see that Jesus' life on earth. Um, so for the Jewish hearer, this glory of God that was displayed in Jesus' life with God um, on Mount Sinai. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to those whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for men shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my, while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. That's in Exodus 33. And then later on in Exodus 34, the Lord in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So we see here this glory displayed to Moses by God. And so this term, full of grace and truth, really makes that connection. As we see uh, in, the, in the passage in Exodus, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This word for faithfulness is in the Old Testament also known as truth. He's gracious and he's faith, and he has faithfulness. And so this is kind of like an idiom in the Greek to show the same idea, full of grace and truth. 
He's gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, John is making this connection to the Old Testament, to who Jesus is, um, showing that he is full of grace and truth. Jesus himself. And so, John reiterates Jesus' eternal existence. In verse 15, John says, he says that John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, and he existed before me. So again, he reiterates Jesus' eternal nature. Um, And when we get to verse 16, it says, For his fullness we have received in grace upon grace. So this fullness is really connected to verse 14. Um, It says in verse 14, The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 16 it says, For his fullness we have received in grace upon grace. And so, this grace upon grace that we have received from Jesus, um, and the NIV translates it, grace in place of grace already given. And so, this is a better understanding of what it's actually saying. Um, this is, I guess, I mean, to use a theological term that might not be helpful, it's like in place of. And so, Jesus, when he came, he fulfilled the Old Testament. He was that grace revealed fully. He was the Old Testament law fulfilled fully. And so when we see this grace upon grace, what John is saying is that we have received the fullness of the grace of God. In the Old Testament, they only could see a glimpse. The law was God's grace to the people of Israel. And yet, as we, as we um, hopefully have learned over the last few weeks with Tim's preaching, the law was never meant to save us. The law only points us the need for our salvation in a, in a Savior like Jesus. And so, Jesus himself fulfilled that. He was the greater grace, if you can put it that way. In verse 17 it says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So they saw God's full glory and his grace revealed in Jesus Christ. So in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So again, this harkens back um, to Moses in the Exodus. Um, No one has fully seen God at any time. In that past, God had to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock so that he wouldn't see his full glory and die. But we can see God's full glory in the person of Jesus. He experienced the disciples and apostles experienced the full glory of Jesus um, as they got to relate to him face to face. And so the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of his glory was brought forth in the person of Jesus. Jesus basically explained God made him known to us. Right? He who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This word explained is where the, we get the word exegesis. I don't know if you've heard of that word. It basically is what we learn, what we do when we read Scripture, right? We read Scripture and we try to understand it, have it explained to us, understanding what is written. And so this is another theological term. Like, I, I'm, I'm mentioning these theological terms because I just want to show how the richness of Christian um, tradition and theology was formed through the Scripture. So this is a good term to, le- to learn, 
It's the term exegesis, and it comes from this word that is used for explain. Basically, Jesus was the exegesis of God. He was the explanation of God the Father that we did not have beforehand. Just as we get an explanation of Scripture when we read it and understand it, so we have a full explanation of who God the Father was in the person of Jesus. He is that full explanation. Um, This leads us to passages like John 4, 45, and 46, where it says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everything who, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not anyone who has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is that full vision, that full picture of who God the Father is. In John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, to Philip, Have I been, have I been so long with you, and yet, yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Here we see this word abide again, right? In verse 18 it says, Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. There was this close, intimate relationship of who Jesus is as part of that Trinitarian Godhead. And so, we have this deep theology that we get just from a small passage. We can unpack some of these concepts in one, two, or three sermons just on their own. I hope this kind of gave us a brief survey of what it looks like. Um, what, John, what John is really explaining when he, when he presents Jesus and how that theology enriches our lives and our understanding of who God is. Um, so if you really, like, when I, when I was reading this, I was just reminded of how rich this book is. If you can find the time to read through this um, and do it at a slow pace so you can read it and understand. I guess it's pretty easy to understand. It's like the concepts are pretty deep, but John does a good job of uh, wording it out because, like I said, he uses a pretty easy language to do it. Um, it's not as complicated as Paul, but this would be a great read. Um, I would encourage you to do it. It's just, it was just really good for me to read this and to um, be reminded of some of the foundational like, where are some of those foundational beliefs that I can articulate but not always connect to Scripture come from? Um, I don't know. If, for me, I kind of geek out on this stuff every once in a while, but um, it, it would really enrich your lives, I think, to do, to do so. Um, so the point of this prologue is to show that who Jesus is and to show us who God is, right? That Jesus discloses who God is. So in doing so, Jesus was the Word. He disclosed who God was by being the Word of God, the explanation um, the very guess, tangible position of who God is um, to us. And then Jesus is the light and light. We don't find any side of Jesus. He's the one who created all things together, um, and in him we find that. And then we have the realization of God's saving grace through the person of Jesus. Um, that's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of the whole Bible is to show us who God is and show his redemptive plan for us and bringing us back to himself. Um, so today, if you don't know Jesus, my prayer for you is that um, you consider who he is, his eternal nature, him being the son of God, um, and that life is not found anywhere else. And if you are a Christian, my prayer for you today is that um, you would seek to grow in your understanding of who he is and let that affect your lives. Let it change your lives. Um, respond to it. Don't just keep those thoughts and those 
that knowledge and that theology and those concepts in your head, uh, but live them out as you go day by day and find ways to do that in a practical way. Um, let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, um, we thank you that you gave us your word, um, that you gave us your scripture that has lasted thousands of years and we were able to read it today as I read it thousands of years ago. That we can know you through what has been taught and told about you. And that we can have your Holy Spirit to live within us and to illuminate us and to help us to understand. Um, we pray that as we go from this place today, um, that we have a desire and a thirst to know you and not just know you and, and who you are and thoughts about what you're like, um, but that we have a desire to live out the reality of your saving grace in our lives. Um, the reality of knowing who you are that will affect our lives in the way that we act, the things that we do and say, the decisions we make um, each day. Um, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.